Good to see you folks this morning. Thankful to God we have opportunity to be together uh, as God's people uh, to study some together from His Word. Uh, since individuals found out that I was getting ready to go to Africa or making those plans, uh, been um, uh, a lot of questions, and that's usually how people will respond when they find out that you're going, um, is that they ask questions. Uh, well, where is Sierra Leone? And how far away is it? And how long of an airline ride, ride is it? Or how long will you be there? Uh, and those are all good questions. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the question that I got the most is, uh, are you ready to go? <laughs> and some of you have asked me that question as well. Um, some of them, sometimes it was way back, and maybe people didn't expect an answer of yes because it was so far away. Some of you asked me that yesterday. Uh, and I don't ever remember saying yes. Uh, to that question, uh, at least not yet anyway, um, as to whether or not I'm ready to go. But that's what I want to talk a little bit about uh, even this morning. Let me clarify something in terms of the answer, that my no answer on that. I have had all my vaccinations and I've had, all my clothes have been sprayed with mosquito repellent and uh, I've, uh, I've got nearly everything packed in some of the suitcases uh, that I'm going to be taking with me. Uh, all my lessons are printed in a notebook and I have them all in order and my airline tickets are purchased, and my passport's in my satchel. Uh, so there's a sense in which I'm ready to go, in the sense of things being in order in that way. But what I recognize as I contemplate that question is that uh, the preparation for such an endeavor uh, involves more than just getting those travel items in order and making sure your passport's valid and so on. A few, few weeks ago, Brother Ralph uh, asked to speak in my place on a Sunday morning, and he presented a very moving lesson on the work in Sierra Leone and the congregation's responsibilities, uh, and even my responsibilities as I got ready to, to, to go there. And in that lesson, he likened the evangelistic endeavor of going to Sierra Leone as a spiritual battle. Uh, he took us to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, focused on uh, the words of the Apostle Paul, as he described the Roman soldier putting on his armor and likened that to the spiritual soldier of Christ putting on the spiritual armor of God. I'm going to go back to those passages. I'm going to use uh, his lesson sort of as a launching pad this morning. And go back to those passages in Ephesians chapter 6 and read them together because I want to make some points that I think that uh, maybe apply to our lives even today. Paul says, beginning in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Uh, put on the whole armor of God, uh, that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist in truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. For me, that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The, the words here about the armor of the soldier I think are familiar to us I would say that probably most if not all of us have heard lessons on this, the particular pieces of armor 
where the person talks about the relationship between the physical armor of the Roman soldier and its spiritual counterpart and what all of those particular uh, elements of the, of the armor of the soldier mean to us today. And some of them are easily associated with a soldier as he would go into battle. In fact, we wouldn't expect to see a soldier going into battle without these things, without a sword, uh, without a shield, uh, without a breastplate and a helmet. Some of those things are maybe more uh, more typical, and certainly they are more familiar to us. Uh, but what I want to talk about this morning is verse 15. One of those things that's mentioned in the list of things that the soldier ought to put on that we usually don't think much about in terms of maybe putting on armor. Paul says there, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, again, there's some insight to be seen when we take look at the Roman soldier as he would prepare for battle in that time. No doubt images that Paul's audience would have been familiar with as they seen the Roman soldier on the streets often. Uh, that, uh, that soldiers had to wear the right kind of footwear. And the typical soldier wore protective leather sandals that would uh, shield his feet. Often that they had, had pieces of metal or bone even woven into the sole so he could have good traction in whatever particular uh, soil or surface he found himself on. And that leather then would be strapped all the way up to the knees and prevent sort of a greaves type thing that would protect him as he went into battle. And battles were won and lost based upon the aspect of a soldier's ability to go across the territory that he had to go across and be able to go in rugged terrain. The success of the Roman legions was partly possible because they were able to march for miles and miles and miles and overtake other armies or pursue their enemy or, or be more successful in battle. So when Paul mentioned the, having your sh- feet shod with the, so, with the shoes of the soldier, he was presenting an image they would have been familiar with, and maybe, maybe even more than us, to be able to recognize the significance of the shoes of the soldier. But what does that mean spiritually? How do we make connection here of the shoes? Well, I believe that what we recognize from, the, from, from looking at the text is that the key word in describing this particular spiritual element is that these are not just any shoes. They are shoes of preparation. Uh, the Greek word for preparation here in the New King James Version uh, is hedomaseo, which means to, in, in the New Testament to prepare or to be ready. It's used in the scriptures many times as a verb. Uh, as the, the Bible will tell us that individuals would be prepared or maybe even unprepared for this. And sometimes it's, it's, sometimes we find it in the noun form in the, term, in the sense of the state of being prepared. And many times, particularly in the King James and New Kings version, that word is readiness. That there's a readiness that's involved in living the Christian life. Now certainly we think about being ready, being prepared in terms of the second coming, about the, the, the judgment of God that's yet to come. That's an important element of all the, of the aspect of the Christian's life to be ready. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44, uh, the, the, the scriptures say, but there, Jesus says, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. And there is that word, uh, the aspect that's the same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 6 that means the aspect of being prepared to act or being ready to go into action because you are properly equipped for it. So to be ready for something in the use of this term means that, you again, you have everything in order. 
if you're going to go on a trip, you got everything packed. If you're going to go into battle, you got your sword, you got your checklist. You make sure that you're well trained. Uh, you make sure that you know what you're going to do at each moment and how you're going to react to circumstances. Preparation in all of those uh, events, whether they are life-threatening events or whether everyday events, carries with it this aspect of looking forward and being equipped for the moment. And so that's the perspective here. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul urged Christians to be ready for every good work. The New International Version says ready to do whatever is good. So Christian has to prepare himself to do things that God would have him to do. He should not be found to where he doesn't, he doesn't have the right uh, attitude, the right even physical elements that are involved to do the will of God. The word also can mean a willingness to act. Not just the aspect that you're equipped to act, that you're qualified to do it, but you have a real desire to engage in an act so that you are ready. Paul said he was ready to preach the gospel in Rome, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 15, talking about his attitude about it, that he was ready to go. Uh, and Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19, urged the Corinthians to participate in the contribution for the poor saints and to have a ready mind towards that. What he was saying is, I want you to be ready to do this in the sense I want you to be willing to do it. So the Christian is called upon to be ready in both senses. He's to be ready, to be prepared, in terms of being equipped for what he's going to do. And of course, at the bottom of this is the aspect of the word of God that equips us to do every good work, thoroughly equips us. But there also has to be willing to do it has to have a mind of perspective on it that he's not going to go into this half-heartedly or he's not going to do it reluctantly or because he's being coerced in some way. Do you think about how many things there is that God calls us to do in our Christian life that involve both of those elements? The aspect of being prepared, equipped for it, the idea that we, when we're going to get around to doing it, we got to do it because we're actually willing to do it because we want to. Now, understanding that word, as I mentioned, I think is the key to seeing how we would interpret Paul's language here about the shoes that we put on as a soldier of Christ. How would he understand the shoes of preparation? Well, I think that in both those ways, that the shoes of preparation that the Christian brings into his life is that he's equipped to do what he wants to do, what God calls him to do, and he's willing to go all the way with it, that he's certainly not going to do this because he's being coerced. And what is involved in this in this text is that He's to be prepared to do what God would give him to do. Now, what kind of preparation is this? Well, I believe it's preparation by the gospel of peace. So what I'm going to suggest to you in terms of interpreting this passage is that what Paul's saying here is that we are to prepare, we are to prepare ourselves through the gospel of peace. But it's not just, you see, that we prepare the gospel to preach it, but rather that the gospel prepares us to preach and teach. And so, when we think about what Paul's mentioning here, I believe that there are at least two thoughts that I that, that make sense to me. Not only that are textual, but I think make sense in terms of what God calls us to do and who he calls us to be. One is that we are to be prepared by the shoes of the gospel of peace to preach the gospel, to tell it to other individuals. Some of the key words of this verse are very similar to Paul's language in Romans chapter 10. And in Romans chapter 10, if you remember, that Paul's in this particular discussion talking about the ability of individuals to be saved through the preaching of the gospel, that the gospel has to go out, the gospel has to be made known. He's really validating God's, uh, God's thinking and God's willingness to preach the gospel to the, to the whole world and the Gentiles. 
But in verse 14 he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now you see the similar language? In Ephesians chapter 6 he said we've got to have shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Prepare ourselves. And then in chapter 10 he says that those who preach the gospel have beautiful feet because they are the feet, you see, that bring preach or preach the gospel of peace. Paul is referring, I believe, to the Old Testament words. If you want to look even further back to Paul's analogies, he's referring to the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah as recorded in Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 7, Isaiah said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now you like it when you get good news, don't you? You're waiting to get some response from something that's happened and maybe you don't know how it turned out, whether it's uh, uh, maybe somebody, one of your family members has had surgery or something's taken place and you're wondering, what's, what's happened here? How did this turn out? And then somebody comes in the door. They don't do that anymore. They call on the phone or they text you. But they come in the door and they say, I got good news. And what do you say? Oh, your feet are beautiful. That's what Isaiah is saying. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the gospel. And so Isaiah saying, you see, isn't it wonderful when somebody shows up and brings good news? And Paul says here, we, as a spiritual soldier of God, we have to prepare ourselves for the journey and for the task that's at hand by putting on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, viewed in this context then, many suggest that the shoes here refer to the eagerness and the ability to preach the word of God. I don't know that this is the best application of this verse. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think certainly when we look at this aspect of the connection of Romans chapter 10 and how Isaiah was speaking about this uh, centuries before, it certainly makes an application to think that what Paul's talking about in terms of the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace is that an individual who's going to put these shoes on is someone who's going to be willing and eager to preach the word of God and to make it known, to tell the gospel to the lost. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince and rebuke and exhort with all longsuffering. So we recognize that the New Testament uh, not only gives the example of Christians going out and preaching and teaching the word, but the specific commandments that an individual must always be ready to preach what God would have him to preach and to teach what God would have him to teach. Now, in order to do that, we have to be familiar with what God says. If you're going to deliver a message, you better get the message straight. You better know what it says and what it means as best you can if you're going to deliver it to others. And James makes that point pretty critical when he says those who would teach fall under greater condemnation. So in order to preach and teach, in order to put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, we have to be familiar with that gospel and spend time in the scriptures. And those who evangelize and teach others are made more sure in their faith because they spend time in God's word knowing, you see, what God would have them to teach to others. So the words, you see, is able to equip that person unto every good work. Uh, so that he can reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering. 
But another element here is that the preparation, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel piece, is a preparation to stand for the truth. And that's maybe the better view, I think, in terms of the immediate context. The context in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15 is about standing firm in verse 13 and 14, that you stand firm and having done all to stand, that you defend the faith because it's being attacked by the enemy and therefore the soldier is involved in a battle of not retreating but valor of standing firm when he's being attacked. And so the, prep, the, the, the preparation involves that. In fact, the word preparation here that's used in this text can also refer to the aspect of standing your ground. Not just being ready for what's going to come, but that when it does come, you don't back up, but you actually are prepared enough that you stand. In the the 89th Psalm in verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation, and there's that word, the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So the idea of being stable and steadfast is the aspect of being prepared. If you look at the NIV rendering of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, it takes that position. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the gospel of peace as a firm footing. So that what's being involved, what's being presented here is the image of a soldier who is able to, when he steps on what he's stepping on, he doesn't slip and fall. Or when he's engaged in actual hand-to-hand combat, he's able to hold his ground to stand firm in the midst of the battle. Now that's, again, something that doesn't come naturally. A person has to prepare to have the ability to stand. And the Christian, you see, can stand because he has the sure footing that's provided by the gospel of peace. How does the gospel give me the ability to stand and fight? Well, here's the ironic part about that. What Paul says is that God gives me the ability to stand firm and fight by adhering to the gospel of peace. So God teaches me how to fight by giving me a message of peace. And when I'm fully involved in this message of peace, I'll be able to stand my ground in the midst of the battle. That seems rather contradictory, doesn't it? And certainly it would call us to have a deeper understanding of what's involved in the aspect of the gospel being a message of peace. Recognize, I think, on the the very first level is that the gospel is a message of peace in the sense that it is promoted and promulgated among men peaceful means and not violent means recognize that we take the preaching of the gospel to Sierra Leone to teach it to other people we're not going to go with an army we're not going to take weapons we're not going to try to coerce someone into believing because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not promoted through violence or war it does not call on us to take up arms or force conformity to God's laws There are some religions who have taken that position. Even those who claim to take the religion of Christ in the past have taken that particular avenue. But from the very beginning, God's word has never called upon Christians to forcibly cause other individuals to have faith or to take up arms because our weapons are not fleshly weapons, because our battle is not a fleshly battle. It is a spiritual battle. So there's a sense in which the gospel, you see, of peace is a gospel of peace because the fact is not promoted by violence, but rather by peace. But there's a further way to look at this. We we recognize that the gospel is a gospel of peace because it engenders peace, because it proclaims peace, and that's what the good news is in Isaiah chapter 52. The messenger comes and and we say, 
He brings good news because he says, there's peace. There's no longer war. Everything is at ease. And we say, how beautiful is that message? So we go to another place and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we preaching to them? We're preaching to them that there's peace. Now that's a powerful message, particularly when you're taking it into a culture where, where, that where countries and peoples have been involved in physical wars for generations, where there are generations of people that grow up that don't know any other way of life except to fight with other individuals. And you go to them with the gospel and say, the real message is that there's peace. Now, when you say that and you look around and they see that there's still a fighting going on, then you have to recognize your responsibility to tell them more. And that if you're really prepared to teach them the truth, you're prepared to teach them how it is that God brings peace. Well, here's one of my thoughts on that. Sometimes we associate peace and the acquiring of peace, and I think rightfully so in terms of the physical sense, in the context of negotiation, diplomacy, and compromise. Two people come to be at peace because they get together and they put their head together and they, they, they sign a peace treaty and say, we're not going to take up arms anymore. You, you give me this, I'll give you that, and we'll compromise and we'll negotiate peace. And that's one way to get it in the physical sense. And peace is achieved that way between nations and between people. When we think about the, the context of the preaching of the gospel among, in the Roman Empire, peace had a very different meaning than that. The Pax Romana of the Roman Empire, the peace of the Roman Empire, was the very mantra in which the generals and others, you see, proclaimed peace among the people. But the Roman general or the Roman emperor saying that the empire was at peace was not because they'd sat down at a table and they negotiated things out with their enemies. Is because the Roman Empire had marched into that territory and through military might had subjugated all the people that were there and told them, you are now under Roman rule, you are at peace. And that was Pax Romana. It was peace that was imposed by subjugation. It was peace that was imposed by victory because, you see, the Caesar or the emperor or whoever it was that leading the military had brought about that peace. In fact, Mark Anthony praised Julius Caesar at his funeral and called him a peacemaker. Why? Because he trampled over everybody else in the world and imposed himself upon everybody else in the world. But that's the way it worked in the Roman culture. Even more interesting, the altar of peace, the Archipasis, stood on Mars Hill, which was the god of war. So you put a, a monument to peace on the next to the statue of the god of war. Why? Because that's how peace came. It came through victory. Now, I say all of that to recognize that when you look in the New Testament and you see the peace that God offers, we should not be deceived into thinking that's a peace that's arrived at because men got their mind together and decided what would be good to practice in religion and how we can all get along together. It's not a negotiated peace. It's not an ecumenical peace where, well, you want to do this, I'll do this, we just won't bother each other. The peace that comes... The gospel of Jesus Christ is a peace that was made possible because there was a great victory. Because God subjugated all of his enemies and brought them under his feet. Because there was a resurrection from the dead. Now there is peace. Peace for whom? For you and me. Peace between God and men. The message we know of the gospel is rather simple, you see. The good news of the gospel is that although we have sinned against God and therefore deserve eternal punishment... 
and that God's wrath would be exacted against us. God loved us and he showed us mercy by sending his son who bared the penalty of the, of the, of the sins that we have committed and resurrected from the dead. And we receive God's salvation by faith and do and faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Apart from any merit on my own, I put my trust in what Jesus has done and I receive salvation. What the Bible describes that as is the Bible describes that as peace. That there is peace through justification, Romans chapter 5. That when God pronounces me innocent through the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm now at peace with God. I don't have to fear His judgment. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I can be at ease in the presence of a holy God, not because of what I have done, because of what Jesus has done. I can have confidence to come to the throne of God, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And what Jesus did is he won an enormous victory over the power of sin. So Paul says he is our peace. We have peace with God and each other. What is exceeding? Notice how this developed, and I'll try to get this quickly here. Notice how this is developed in Ephesians. Before we get to chapter 6 where he talks about the gospel of peace, he tells us how that peace came about. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, was the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him as right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. What's he describing there? He's describing a victory over Satan and all the principalities and powers in the universe. And then in chapter 2, you see, he makes that personal for us. Not only is that victory the aspect of peace with God, but it's also peace with men. And so as unbelievers, we are unwittingly the servants of Satan. We are formerly dead in our trespasses of sins, chapter 2. We walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of air. But now, you see, things are different. Even when we were the enemies of Christ and had no hope, Christ died for us. Verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments that was contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enemy, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. So peace is the goal, the result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ at Calvary reconciled us back to God, made us so that we can stand before God. But the peace of the gospel extends to people as well, so that we are all, you see, able to recognize that we can be one with one another as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are at peace with one another. The Jew and the Gentile in one body. The wall of separation broken down. Who could have thought of it? Who could have ever dreamed of it in the first century? That the Jew and Gentile could sit down and worship the same God together. And the enmity could be gone. It didn't happen through negotiation. It didn't happen through compromise. It happened through the death of Jesus on the cross. And the message that brought that peace was the message of a crucified Savior risen from the dead. Who subjugated all his enemies and was at the right hand of God. Now, if we want to preach peace to the world that, we're, that we live in, peace to people on the other side of the world, that's the peace we ought to preach. 
And so the sure footing of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the sure footing of peace between God and his people. It's a sure footing in which Christian stands against the enemy. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, do we have anything to fear? He is a defeated enemy who would come against us because God reigns supreme over all. Why should I be afraid? So are you ready to go? Are you prepared to preach the message? Well, if I put my shoes on, and the shoes are the gospel of the peace of Jesus Christ, made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he is at the right hand of God, what do I have to be afraid of? You see, that's what it means to be ready. It means to put on the armor of God. To take the sword of the Spirit. I got my Bible. Take the shield of my faith. The helmet of my salvation that says I'm a child of God. Nothing can disrupt my relationship with God. And put the feet, put my feet into the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And know that the message that I'm going to present and that all of us are going to present to the world that we live in is a, is a message of a spiritual peace made possible through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. There is no place else on this planet that people can find that kind of peace except in that message. And if you and I are not preaching it, we can't possibly in any way hope that this world could ever be at peace. But that's the message. It's the aspect of being able to stand before others and preach the gospel of Christ because of what it is, not because of who I am. And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I suffer all of these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him unto that day. Doesn't matter. Where he went, what happened, what took place. Of that message, of that gospel, I will never be ashamed. The pulpit commentary on this particular passage says, The idea seems to be that the mind is to be steadied, kept from fear and flutter by means of the good news of peace. The good news that we are at peace with God. And that if God be for us, who can be against us? The Roman sandal was furnished with finished, furnished with nails that gripped the ground firmly, even if it was sloping and slippery, so the good news of peace keeps us upright and firm. So, the readiness of mind comes through understanding the message itself. That preparation is a true essential. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ to whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One last thing. When Paul came to Caesarea on his way back to Jerusalem, there was a lot in the air with the idea that Paul would go back to Jerusalem. He fled there, and he recognized that the source of nearly every ounce of the opposition that he faced, particularly in Asia Minor, when he took the gospel out elsewhere, originated in Jerusalem, that there was a great animosity against Paul in Jerusalem. But here he had he had a contribution of saints that on the other side of the world, practically, for, the, for those people in Jerusalem. And he was determined to take it. In fact, his plans first were to go to Rome, but he put that trip off so that he could or go to Spain, put that trip off so that he could go to Jerusalem and he could deliver this contribution to the poor saints that were there. And when he got to Caesarea, 
Spirit revealed to the brethren there that what Paul was looking at and what looking forward to was suffering. The man whose belt I'm holding, you see, is going to be imprisoned. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to face great danger. And the brethren all said, oh, wait a minute. Don't go there. Don't go there. Acts chapter 21, Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the same word. I am ready. I am prepared. Paul had his shoes on. He was ready to go to Jerusalem to preach the gospel no matter what. Because Paul had the peace of the gospel, because he understood his own salvation, he knew how peace had come to his heart and to his life through the death of Jesus Christ. Because he'd gone elsewhere and preached that same peace and seen the grace of God extended to those who had no hope without the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'd seen peace. He'd seen the working of peace among the Jew and the Gentile. He held in his satchel physical evidence that the Jew and the Gentile could live together and worship together in great peace, all because of the message that he was preaching. So he had nothing to fear. He would go back to Jerusalem and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ again and even die for that gospel because it was a gospel of peace. Thank you for your attention this morning. We're going to sing the song that's been announced about the blood of Jesus. And we've talked about that blood, talked about it from the context of the power of that blood to reconcile God with man. What else could do that? What other event could ever bring that about than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? On this side of that event and on this side of eternity, we recognize the significance of that. We preach it and teach it without reservation. Jesus Christ died for you and he rose from the dead. And the only way you can be saved is to put your trust in the blood that was shed for him by him. So you come believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You turn away to start a new life in the right direction. You turn away from sin and you repent. You confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your only Lord. And then you, having died with him, you're willing to be buried with him in baptism. That burial is the precursor to a spiritual resurrection to new life. Will you do that this morning while we stand and sing?